Echo Box Radio is a completely independent station broadcasting from below sea level. Like what you hear? You can help us keep going by heading to the support us button on our website. Echo Box Radio. Support the box. State ascoltando Radio Ecobox. Hello, you're listening to Talk That Science here on Ecobox Radio. I am Evelyn. Oh, and I'm Nicolene. <laughs> and today we host Talk That Science. We play some nice tunes and introduce you to the coolest research. The topic of today will be effective altruism. Our guests today are Tim and Amarins. Hi, Tim and Amarins. Hello. Hi. <laughs> Uh, Amarins is currently working as a community co-director for Effective Altruism Netherlands. Uh, she has a master's degree in methodo- methodology and uh, Tim organizes Effective Altruism meetups for the community in Amsterdam and is currently a PhD student in machine learning. Welcome Tim and Amarins, nice that you are here, to, here today with us. Thanks for having us. Yeah, good to be here. Effective altruism is a recent movement that calculates and models the best way to spend your money or time in order to improve the world. Calculate before you give can be considered their slogan. We all know that feeling that we want to do something good for the world and humanity. Rather than just following the heart in doing so, effective altruism aims to combine this intuitive feeling with reason and evidence, thus making it into a kind of science, actually. Well, let's start off with a question to Tim. What uh, is effective altruism? Yeah. Um, I mean, it's, it's a, a very big thing. So I think the, the way I usually try to explain it in one sentence is uh, using reason and evidence to do the most good with the limited resources that we have. And it's a, it's a philosophy and it's also a movement. Uh, and so the, really the idea is we're going to think about the best ways to do good and then we're going to do them. That's the, the, the summary in a nutshell. <laughs> uh, okay, thank you. Um, so if we focus on this philosophical or this philosophy part of it, uh, what do you think is the philosoph- philosophical motivation for effective altruism? Yeah, so I guess the sometimes considered the, the godfather of uh, EA is uh, Peter Singer. He's, uh, well, by now uh, quite an old philosopher, but he's been very influential in ethics. Uh, and he is really, I would say, uh, a, a utilitarian. He cares about um, doing the most good for uh, affecting the most people and the most beings. And really the, the philosophy behind that is uh, the best thing to do is the thing that is the best for the most people. So... I would say that is that is kind of the the underlying philosophy. Although, of course, not everyone who is in EA adheres to that. Um, yeah, and then, and I think I think yeah, I would say that is the let's let's start stop there for now. That's mm-hmm. uh, that is the fundamental of EA, I'd say. Okay, so uh, I heard you say this utilitarianism. Mm-hmm. Um, 
it's uh, very often effective altruism is compared with utilitarianism. Uh, Amarins, is it exactly the same thing or are there some differences? Well, uh, philosophy is not uh, <laughs> exactly my cup of tea, but I think um, it's not exactly the same as utilitarianism, although it touches upon it. Uh, I think there's also some prioritarianism in it, um, but maybe Tim can answer this a bit better. <laughs> <laughs> What is prioritarianism, if I can ask? I think... Can you explain this better? I'm, I'm not <laughs> a great expert on prioritarianism. <laughs> no, I think this is one for you. <laughs> so the philosophy uh, listeners will probably uh, <laughs> don't like yes, me. Hang right. us. <laughs> <laughs> don't like me for butchering up this, but I think that's uh, giving some more weight to people who are like in uh, yeah um, in really bad states. Ah, okay. So that um, it's not only uh, just. Make sure you you maximize happiness, but also kind of divide it, spread it a bit equally. Yeah, or yeah, in the sense that like uh, someone uh, who could get uh, three utilins extra, who is really relatively good off already, mm -hmm. or someone who's like in a, a worse state and gets three utilins extra, will give it to the latter person instead of the former. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, uh, and. What do you think are arguments to uh, adhere to effective altruism rather than other forms? <laughs> ah, that's, a, that's, a, that's a big question. <laughs> um, I don't know, for me, I think... So I, I guess the thing that convinced me of effective altruism was a, a bit that I always used to be very, uh, I guess, annoyed at, at uh, nonprofits and at charities. Uh, people would say, yeah, we need to do good, we need to, you know, you need to donate money. And uh, you would always hear these stories about that not actually working, things were corrupt, things, money would actually end up at the people uh, that was supposed to go to. Um, and, and so I, I never really felt very altruistic for that reason. And then I read about EA where people were like, look, we can just actually research this and, and look at the things that work and then do those things and not do the things that don't work. And so... For me, it was really a, oh, if we can improve, if we can actually just improve the world in some way and we know how to do that, then why not just do that? It seems sort of the obvious thing to, to be doing, right? Um, and the thing that always stopped me was the feeling that I couldn't, but now I feel more like I can. So why not do it? That's really a nice answer. So uh, if I can clarify, so is it, it sounds like you um, like it so much because it becomes really like rather easy. You don't have to make a lot of... Yeah, think sort about of. what to do. Is that But true? It, I mean, I, I think ease is, is part of it in the sense of uh, having the, the, the trust that the things I do are actually working out, right, mm -hmm. in some ways. Um, it's also the, the feeling of having an entire community that is working on this problem, that is trying to fix these, these issues in the world, and that's doing it in a way that, uh, I guess, aligns with my worldview of doing things that are evidence-based and that are reason-based, rather than just sort of trying to randomly do things and hope that they work or or maybe you feel that they should work and therefore they, they should work but maybe they don't at all uh, and you don't know that until you do the research and so that I think that really speaks to me. Okay, Amarins, uh, what are your reasons for joining the effective altruism community? Um, I think it's similar. I found out about effective altruism when I uh, was a third year student and I'd always wanted to make the world a little bit of a better place. I was a vegetarian since I was a child, but I'd never really thought about that effectiveness component. And as a as a university student, that really spoke to me. Um, and then I was 
Yeah, I, I was amazed to see that there was a whole community of people who was kind of like taking this, this doing good thing very seriously and really uh, dedicating a lot of their resources to it. So I think that, yeah, I found that really beautiful and it really struck with me. Um, and I've heard uh, more often uh, this. I, we also mentioned in the discussion that, like we do, uh, that effective altruism does research on like what is actually the most effective. Um, yeah, just kind of giving this kind of sciencey aspect. And of course, we are here also a science podcast. So I'm quite curious what, uh, how you, do you see effective altruism as a kind of science? Or yeah, I would say I see it as applying the the ideas or the methods of, of science to uh, doing good. So, uh, I, w I mean, I guess that, that makes it a science in itself, right? You're trying to figure out, you're sort of in the field of figuring out which, which actions, which things actually have an impact on the world, which I guess you could call its own science. Uh, so, yeah, maybe. <laughs> I, I guess I don't really see it as a science as such, but you could consider it one probably. What about you, Amarins? Um Yeah, I think so. It, I think it comprises several research fields like that have now uh, arised. Oh. <laughs> like global priorities research, trying to figure out what, yeah, what the biggest problems are that we should be working on, or like welfare biology, so trying to figure out like what maybe wild animals even feel. Um, so it, it touches upon it, but I agree with what Tim said. Yeah, I think it's very nice that it opens up a bunch of there's a lot of questions that I guess we didn't really, or a, as a society or as a humanity, didn't really ask ourselves until we started thinking about, or at least this is what I what I uh, think, until we started thinking about what the uh, what the most effective ways of doing good are. And there's just a lot of strange ideas that come by when you, once you really start thinking about this. Uh, and so the thing Amon's mentioned about wild animals, it's like we often have this this idea that wild animals are sort of living in sort of harmony with nature. Uh, but then if you kind of actually look at their lives, often, you know, they, they die of diseases very quickly or they get eaten, which must be horrible. Uh, and so thinking about, wait, so what are lives of wild animals actually like? And is there anything we can do to help that or like reduce that suffering somehow? Those are questions that don't come up until you start really thinking about it. Okay. Um, and also both of you actually have a master's degree as I um, are a master of science and also effective altruism uh, is founded from academia, in academia, if I remember correctly. Yeah. Um, can you maybe uh, explain a bit more about the history of effective altruism since it's so uh, such a recent movement, actually? Yeah, uh, sure. So I guess <laughs> the ideas behind effective altruism, sort of in, in the slightly more modern form, I think were floating around the internet around the end of the 2000s, you know, the, the first, uh, first decade. Um, and around that time, I think somewhere 2009 or something, uh, there was this philosopher called Toby Ord. He was looking at uh, consequentialism and how to put consequentialism into actions. So consequentialism is the philosophy that says the things that matter are, uh, or the, the, um, yeah, the, th the things that matter are the consequences of your actions. And so he was looking at that and he uh, was in Oxford with uh, Will McCaskill, who was also a philosopher there. Uh, he was also interested in similar topics, and they uh, started thinking about, okay, so, you know, uh, w w how should we actually apply this, this, this philosophy to the real world? And what they ended up doing was uh, deciding to donate uh, 
certain percentage of their income to effective charities. And there was already an organization back then called GiveWell uh, that uh, did some research in the, in the area of um, developmental aid, like what are the, the best things to do to uh, help people in developing countries. And uh, so they, they st started looking at that, they organized or they, they founded this organization called uh, Giving What We Can, which is sort of meant to be a community for people who also pledge to donate certain parts of their income to these effective, effective charities. And so at, at this time, it was still very much focused on developmental aid. These days, EA is a lot bigger than that. Um, but that's where we started. And yeah, I think around that time, there's also uh, 80,000 Hours was founded by uh, an or another organization that looks more, instead of using your money uh, to have an impact, you can use your time to have an impact. So this looks at uh, yeah, what kind of careers are impactful? And uh, the name 80,000 Hours comes from the, the number of hours that you typically spend on a career. Uh, and then somewhere around that time, also the, the Center for Effective Altruism, which is kind of the umbrella organization, was founded to combine these two. And I think this is generally considered to be the, the start of EA. As a, That's also when the name Effective Altruism was chosen to represent the, the movement around that time. Yeah, that's a short history. And this was all, maybe you said it, or I missed it, but this was like about 10 years ago or something? Yeah, I would say so. A bit more than 10 years ago. Yeah. yeah. So that's a very recent movement. Yes, we're very young. <laughs> <laughs> and has it grown a lot ever since? Yeah, I think still so. still growing? I don't actually know the numbers, okay. but uh, every time I hear that it's still growing, and I mean, at least to my meetups, new people keep coming, so there must be new people who get uh, introduced to EA somehow. Uh, yeah, and also in the Netherlands, it's clearly growing. Uh, I think worldwide too. So yeah, no, I would say we're we're doing uh, quite well on that front. Okay. Oh, maybe we can have our first uh, break uh, song. Uh, it's actually the song that you uh, sent me, Tim. It's called <laughs> Effective Altruism. It's a very uh, funny song. Uh, did you just find it randomly, or I, I googled Effective Altruism music mm -hmm. because I remembered I had found a song like this, like back in twenty two thousand and eighteen or something, and then I found it again. Okay. Uh, yeah, I listened to it like twice in my entire life, so. <laughs> <laughs> this will be the third time. <laughs> yes, exactly. Wait, this, yeah, um, yeah, I think it's from an album. The whole album is called um, uh, Altruism, and like one of their songs is called Effective Altruism. Trying to look it up. Yeah, there it is. Well, it's coming from the phone. Good as we can, yeah. I follow Robert Wiblin on Facebook. 
Existential risks that threaten our entire species. Man, existential risks are too real. Are you hearing me? Humanity might commit species suicide. Seriously, effective altruism. Let's find the greatest charities and help save the lives of trillions of future beings. Eager to see the results of Give Directly's basic income pilot, and I see that addressing poverty can also decrease violence. Understand the to Sam Harris's interview with Will McGaskill. I volunteer as a digital strategist for the life you can save. And like the Future of Life Institute, I help avoid mass graves. Nuclear close calls make me shudder profoundly. And I've read a few things by Eliezer Yudkowsky. I like how Tyler Alterman shares things that are not filler. And yes, I'm well aware that politics is the mind killer. needs and avoid existential risks that threaten our entire species. Man, existential risks are too real. Are you hearing me? Humanity might commit species suicide. Seriously, effective altruism. Let's find the greatest charities and help save the lives of trillions of future beings. Thanks to Elon Musk, we might soon be multiplanetary. That would increase our species' resilience substantially. Effective duo. I appreciate the machine intelligence 
Ensuring AI doesn't optimize for non-human friendly values Used to getting less wrong, navigating this millennium's insanity And building a more cooperative, harmonious, sustainable humanity Let's meet everyone's basic needs and avoid existential risks that threaten our entire species. Man, existential risks are too real. Are you hearing me? Humanity might commit species suicide. Seriously. Effective altruism. Let's find the greatest guarantees and help save the lives of trillions of future beings. Let 20 million people per year die from poverty. Let's get all humans Level of Maslow's hierarchy Effective altruism Meet everyone's basic needs And avoid existential risks That threaten our entire species Okay, in the in the break, Tim, you just mentioned that in this song, which is maybe like three years old or four years old, there are some words mentioned that back then were very uh, trendy, mm. but now we have a slightly different look on it. Uh, yeah. Can you explain uh, what you just told me? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was saying it's fun to see sort of the, the self-correcting uh, effect of effective altruism in this song. I think it was from 2018. Uh, and one of the words that I noticed was cool earth. Uh, which is a, a non-profit and uh, we used to, or we, EA, <laughs> used to uh, consider Cool Earth one of the most effective uh, charities when it came to um, preventing climate change. And what they did was they tried to protect, I think, the Amazon rainforest by using or sort of enabling the local people there to, um, yeah, I'm not exactly sure what they did, but they helped the local people to protect the rainforest. Um, and so I'm not sure what happened, but I remember reading, I think maybe two or three years ago at some point that uh, actually the research on Cool Earth or the, the actual things that happened with Cool Earth aren't as good as we thought. Uh, and now there is other uh, organizations that are considered more effective. Um, and I think this is a combination of both the Cool Earth not being as good as we thought and finding other opportunities that were even better, but that hadn't been researched before yet. Uh, so yeah, I thought it was interesting because, you know, you, th this is kind of what you want from a movement like this, that when new information comes in, you actually change your advice. And this, this song is kind of proof that it happened in some ways. Mm -hmm. So I thought it was interesting. Cool, indeed. Yes. Um, yeah, so in the, b just before the break, we already, uh, you already mentioned some projects uh, from the history of effective altruism because, um, yeah, more concretely, um, what are ways to be effective like as an individual i think they already um we didn't mention that explicitly although we mentioned the project so you mentioned the 80 hours project 80,000 hours project so clearly you can spend like time um 
to be an effective altruist, or you can spend your money with this, mm -hmm. uh, what was it, giving what we can project. Yeah, for instance. Um, are there also other ways, or are these the, the primary two ways? I mean, I guess, you know, it's about... The, the introduction I gave was something uh, using reason and evidence to do most good with the limited resources that we have. And then you can think about what are those resources, right? I think money and time tend to be the, the typical ones. I guess you could have stuff lying around that might be useful for some project that you might use. But I think in general, time and, and money is something that most people in the, in the Western world, or at least uh, the people that we try to engage, have um, or, or might have. Uh, And I think those are the, the, the two biggest ways in which you can try to be effective about your good doing. Mm -hmm. yeah. And if I remember correctly, uh, you told in the past that you are also doing this giving what we mm -hmm. can project, which means giving 10% of your income, or is that yeah. your interpretation, that's this 10%? Yeah, so, the, the, so giving what we can is this organization, this community, uh, and, and what they try to do is to... Um, help or maybe convince people to uh, who have those means to give a certain percentage of their income away to effective charity and this can be so give uh, given what we can originally was mostly focused on developmental aid but these days they say okay just do any sort of uh, non-profit or any any kind of or actually giving according to ea principles that is sort of the so it doesn't necessarily have to be an effective charity as as is research but you can use the principles yourself as well um And so 10% is kind of the, the, the default they settled on because that seems to be something that most people can miss. Uh, it's kind of like a nice, a nice uh, point to coordinate around. You know, you can just say, I give 10% and then maybe in, a, in two years you're going to reconsider, but then you don't have to constantly think about, oh, how much should I be giving according to my own ethics? Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, and so they have this, this, this community. You can say you take the pledge there, they call it. So you pledge to give 10% of your income to these effective causes for the rest of your working life um, and you know and then you can you can log in you have a dashboard and you can say oh I donated this much and they check oh did you actually get your pledge and of course it's not legally binding or anything uh, but it's a it's a good way to give you some um, uh, yeah I guess, I guess community around that to, and motivate you to keep doing that mm -hmm. yeah and so I also chose to just do the 10% the default 10% And how uh, I see that the, indeed makes it easier that you just say by default, okay, 10%, you don't have to think anymore about how much. And then for the part of, uh, yeah, what to spend it on, mm -hmm. uh, how do you do that? Is there, say, uh, one fund of effective altruism that then determines what to give it to? Or are you going to choose yourself every month? These are all options. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, there is actually uh, uh, the effective altruism funds. Uh, I think they've been around for a few years now. And essentially what happens is you pile your, you, you give them your, uh, your money, your donation, and you can say, oh, I want a certain percentage of this to go to maybe developmental aid or animal welfare or uh, far future or uh, movement building. Those, I think, are the four categories they have. And then you just pile it onto one big pile, and then the grad makers behind effective altruism funds decide, okay, to, given the current research, you know, these are people that are employed to do this, uh, what should the money go to? And this has certain advantages. Uh, such as sometimes as an individual donor, you can't really have a big impact on something. But then if you pool your resources with other people, then you can maybe get a project off the ground that otherwise wouldn't have happened. Um, so that's one way of doing it. And the other way of doing it is uh, just looking for yourself which individual uh, projects or nonprofits do you want to give to. Uh, and, and there's organizations that uh, have researched this and tell you, look, these, these things are 
quite effective to do. If you care about this, then maybe you should give to this organization. If you care about that, then maybe you should give here. Um, and of course, there's also the, the sort of more, more risky aspect of, hmm, I, I know certain people who are, uh, you know, who, who I think are quite competent and they working on this project that they think might be very interested, but that interesting or effective. But then you kind of get to the point where, hmm, you know, how, how, how evidence-based, how reason-based is this? And so you should be very careful with those kind of things. But sometimes it is true that you have more information because you know these people or you, you mm -hmm. know to feel better than, than EA, EA as a whole. And then maybe it is actually better to, to do that. Yeah. But be careful with those <laughs> because it's very uh, tempting to think you might know better. Yeah, yeah. there seems to be indeed a lot of trust involved in these methods they use. And maybe we can zoom in a bit on that. Um, because how, and I think, Amarins, you know a bit more about this, or at least you uh, did some research about it. I think you both know about it. So how is it that, uh, how is it calculated that something is more effective? How do you express this? How do you go about this? Yeah, so cost-effectiveness has two sides. The costs, obviously, and the effectiveness. And I think what you're referring to is the effectiveness here. Mm -hmm. um, so I think uh, one very popular way is to use quality-adjusted life years, or qualies in short, which basically take into account how many extra years you get uh, of life and also uh, and how good uh, your health and the quality of life is during those years. Uh, for example, uh, if you give... Uh, if you would give uh, malaria nets, they try to use it to figure out like how many years effectively have we kind uh, of actually created. So what what I did though was not on quality adjusted life years. I researched uh, self-reported well-being. Uh, so basically, like uh, if people uh, get, for example, air purifiers or whatever intervention how much better is uh, their life satisfaction or their happiness as described by them and trying to figure out basically how for like a certain budget, say a thousand dollars, how can you get most self-reported life satisfaction? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, okay, so dollar. the difference between the two is that with the qualies, uh, you already mentioned it, I think shortly, you talk counterfactually, so you actually don't didn't happen yet, but you reason if this happens, then we think this will happen whereas with the thing uh you research i forgot the mm. name or oh, self-reported it's actually it happened and you ask like as a survey kind of like how how do yeah. you feel about this yeah exactly so i think uh qualies at least used to be constructed as like hypotheticals they would ask people for their preferences uh yeah would you rather have uh like <laughs> very arbitrarily like one leg or have like headaches for uh all of the time and then they kind of try to construct like uh the quality of life during this year so it's a hypothetical uh, and self-reported well-being as you said is what people actually experienced after getting these interventions so you ask the recipients rather than the people who construct the qualities okay um and uh, what were your uh findings more or less you, you did you compare these methods with each other yeah so part of my research was trying to redo um the cost effectiveness of uh the, yeah the research that Givewell did uh which was in something that resembles a quality and see if we use self-reported well-being will the cost effectiveness come out uh, the same in like absolute and relative terms so uh will the same interventions uh come out on top again like um providing bed nets, for example, or deworming pills. 
And another part of it was uh, more speculative research. So what I said, for example, air purifiers, looking at whether that could be highly cost effective. And I think in general, um, the the metric qualities or the metric that uh, Giffel uses was relatively robust uh, in the sense that it was very similar to self-reported well-being. Um, yeah, it's more about the philosophical assumptions that you uh, use when you're trying to figure them out. That uh, makes a big difference. So, for example, do you think like if you try to figure out a, a, a quali, uh, do you think that uh, the life of a, saving the life of a, a five-year-old is better than saving the life of an eighteen-year-old? Uh, because say you take the average age, which would be sixty in a country, and you subtract five and you save five, 55 years in hypothetical, is that really better than saving like 42 years for the 18 year old? Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay, so, and those, uh, there's, this under, there's this underlying assumption actually in a quali, right? That it would be better to save the five year old. Yeah, that's called a deprivationist account in philosophy, I guess. Mm -hmm. Okay, because, uh, yeah, because in terms of qualis, something is better if you have more um, life years. Yeah, life years minus, expected life years minus the, say, the pains that you endure during, during those life years. Yeah, basically. Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay, so, uh, Tim, you said it would be easier to do effective altruism, but this all sounds a bit hard and can <laughs> make it even more complex, um, as I think so, if you also want to calculate for future events. So uh, maybe now you can say for uh, one, one person in the Western world to uh, lose um, quality of life, there will be maybe a thousand in Africa, probably even more in uh in development countries, but uh, maybe if something with the environment were to be happening in 50 years, there would be an entire group of people uh, losing a lot of quality of life. How uh, can you calculate qualities for future events? Is that even possible? Yeah, that's a very good question. I think, I mean, you, yeah. So originally EA used to be very focused uh, on these these things that were very easy to are very easy relatively easy to to research and to measure where you can just actually do a bunch of what they call random control trials where you do an intervention see what happens have a control group see what happens there and just compare uh, and th that is a great way to do this research but you can't do that you can't have multiple earths and then see what happens when you get a climate crisis and see what happens when you don't and compare uh, so there I think as EA has matured, we've also started using different uh, methods to try to do some kind of estimation of cost effectiveness in those areas. And I'm not actually sure necessarily how the, I think there's no one single method to do cost effectiveness uh, research in that area. I think a lot of it is based on multiple people who sort of have a feeling for the field doing different estimations and then just writing big reports about, look, we made these uh, assumptions and therefore this comes out and this is, these are error bounds on that and this is what we think. And then other people saying, actually, I have these assumptions and so maybe this comes out. And so you can get a, get a kind of sense of the, the general order of magnitude of, of how effective something would be. Um, so I guess that's, uh, yeah, so that would be sort of the philosophical side of it. How do you, or the, the computational side of it, how do we actually figure out what is effective? But I think in terms of uh, the actions, what, what do you do with that information? Uh, because the, the evidence is a lot more, uh, well, 
sparse and it's a little hard to figure out what it, what actually works. You tend to take more of a, a hits-based giving approach where you say, look, um, there is this huge problem, climate change, uh, and there are these certain things that are unlikely to work, but if they work, it's going to be great. And there's lots of these things that we, we you know, it's, it's very hard to solve this problem, but maybe we can solve them this way, maybe we can solve them that way. Maybe we should do more activism, maybe we should uh, invest in carbon capture technology. And there's all those, those ideas out there, and you can sort of, I mean, you can at least make some estimation of when, whether things have any chance of working at all or not, and then you just do a lot of them. And so as, as a big movement, which EA is starting to become, you can actually fund multiple projects and say, look, most of these are going to fail, but the two of them that are going to work are going to be great. And uh, so in the end, all that money we spent on all these projects is still worth it, given the outcome of these two. Uh, and I guess the, you know, there it's harder to stay near the philosophy of just using reason and evidence to do the most good because, you know, what, what evidence do you actually have? But you can still do the reason part. Uh, and that's sort of, I mean, that of course becomes harder because it's harder to objectively check. Uh, but it is still very important to, to do that and not just follow whatever you think might be true before actually thinking about it deeply and talking to a lot of people and seeing what has been done in the past maybe. What, what have other movements achieved and how did they do that? You can, you can use those kind of considerations. Okay, uh, did you want to ask something? Okay, then maybe a break? Yeah, okay. Then uh, we put play another song. It's uh, again an altruism song. I mean, it's called altruism. Um, that's the theme of today. <laughs>
Okay, so for the last part of this episode, uh, we want to actually talk about some effective altruist, uh, altruists. Um, first, uh, we want to talk about James Urbinski, who can be considered an altru effective altruist avant la lettre, as we <laughs> said before. Um, Tim, can you maybe explain who he was? Yeah. Yes. So I think this is an example uh, from uh, Will McCaskill's book. So that's the, one of the, the people who founded Giving What We Can and who sort of started this entire movement. He wrote a book, Doing Good Better, uh, explaining sort of effective altruism. Uh, and this example is of, uh, <laughs> like you say, someone who did effective altruism before effective altruism kind of was a thing. Uh, and James Rubinsky was uh, the head of a, a Red Cross hospital in uh, Rwanda in 1994, I think, during the, the Tutsi genocide. Um, and so the hospital where he was working was completely inundated with uh, victims of this, this genocide. And so there were just too many people to help. Uh, and what you do in a situation like that as a, as a, as a medical hospital, you, you uh, triage. And triage is like, you know, this is a very old thing, which uh, is actually a very EA thing to do. You sort of, you have to assign sort of numbers to people. Say, okay, this person, we just can't, we, we could help them, but it takes too much effort. And uh, with that same effort or say the same resources, we can save many other people in the same time. And because we have too many people to help, we have limited resources, just like we have in the real world when we try to solve all the problems. Uh, we need to prioritize certain people over others. And, and so that's what they did. And of course, this meant a lot of people who could have been helped otherwise died, which is horrible. Uh, but if he hadn't done this, then probably many more people would have died. And, and this is, I guess, a bit the, um, the thing we face as, as, a, well, as, a, as a world, but also as EA, as a movement, where it's, there's a lot of people also here in the Western world that we could maybe save if we spent a lot of effort or money. You know, you have lots of these uh, maybe as a, a, a uniquely horrible example, crowdfunds for uh, uh, children that need certain surgeries in the, in the US, for instance. And uh, then you can add, of course, I'm going to give the money because that, that child needs to be safe of this, this horrible disease that they have. Um, but with that same money, on the other side of the world, you could save many children that, have, that are in sort of a similar situation where they also have some horrible disease, but one that's much easier to cure and that also will not be cured if you don't give that money because there's just still a lot of room for funding there. Um, and, and so you have to make this sort of horrible decision of do I save this one person that is nearby or do I save these multiple people that are on the other side of the world? And, you know, in a, in a hospital when you're triaging, all those people are nearby. So it's already a difficult decision, but it's somewhat easy, made easier by the fact that you can kind of compare these multiple people to this one person and you kind of make that decision. But here you're trying to compare one close person to multiple other people. Uh, and that, of course, is not a well, not an easy decision, even if you don't actually know the person who is close in some way, but they're more your your social group or your you know they look more like you or they are in your country. Uh, yeah, so those are very difficult choices. And James Urbinski is kind of a, <laughs> an example of someone who did this triage in this very difficult moment. And you could consider that EA. I'm quite wondering, like related to this, um, I really see the argument, like rationally, I fully agree. Um, but I don't feel it. So actually, um, I think if you would apply the argument, the reasoning, then we do a lot of things here in the Netherlands, for example, where we cure people, but it's really expensive. And probably if we didn't do it and we send the money to another place, 
uh, for much more basic diseases that are yet uh, of which they can die, probably it would be way more effective. Uh, but it, that's hard to, to feel. But I'm wondering, like, do you, uh, both being effective altruists, do you feel this differently or you just really rationalize this and you just listen to your ratio? Yeah, it's a very difficult question. <laughs> I think... I think it's both. Like mostly, it's rationalization. Uh, after thinking about it for long enough, you do start sort of feeling the the difference a bit. I think also something like you know, like you said, in the Netherlands, there there is actually just a number that the government puts on a, a healthy life year for people, and uh, this is also a thing they have to do because otherwise, you spend end up spending a lot of money to save one person, where that same money funded uh, into a hospital could have saved more people. So it's kind of the same decision, but there you're making it again as a sort of triaging thing in, within your own country. Uh, and, and of course, you know, a government has a certain responsibility to its citizens and maybe not to other citizens. But those are very philosophical questions that you might get into. Um, I think for me, I don't know, I, I think if actually someone in my environment, like if a friend needs, needs help or if, if a family member needs help, of course I'm going to help them. I'm not going to say, no, actually I'm <laughs> going to give this money to give well because that, that works better. Uh, no, <laughs> that is not a very sustainable way of living for me. Uh, mm -hmm. And I have to consider that I'm, you know, human and not some kind of super rational, mm -hmm. uh, effective altruism, uh, utilitarian robot. But, it, I mean, it is something you think about and then uh, mm -hmm. I notice it changes the way I think about these things. Mm -hmm. And Amarins, do you have the feeling as if the emotional part has been taken from the altruism in effective altruism? Mm. Not really. I think it always comes from a place of compassion and realizing how fortunate we are and how much good we could actually do if we look a bit further than our direct environment. So I think it actually, for me, I would say it, it comes from a place of compassion. Uh, obviously, it's it's hard to talk about people like they are just numbers, but like the the other scenario is that people unnecessarily die if we are not willing to talk about it in that way. So. Talking about more, maybe in, in slightly unintuitive cases, um, I think it was you, Amarins, but maybe it was Tim who mentioned um, um, Sam Bankman-Fried. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, can you elaborate on this man? <laughs> what? Why is he such a popular, effective altruist? Yeah, I think he's very exemplar in the movement in the sense that um, he first learned about uh, doing good with your career when he was uh, a student at MIT in 2012. Um, and he heard about the arguments for earning the gift, which is basically trying to find a high earning job so you can donate more money than you otherwise could have uh, and thereby hopefully have an outsized impact. Um, and he was very compelled by the arguments. So a few years later, he left his job uh, then at the Center for Effective Altruism, I think it was. And he used his strong mathematical skills for a job at a trading firm uh, in Wall Street. And from there, he went on to found FTX, which is now worth, as you might know, uh, billions. And his, es uh, his own net worth is estimated to be 16 billion, uh, which makes him the richest person in the world under 30 years old. Um, and he intends to basically donate all of his uh, future money. He's already donated lots to, uh, yeah, like millions to animal welfare or the Biden campaign. Um, and um, yeah, I think this is a, a pretty good example of like how an unusual approach to doing good can really have a lot of effects uh, because he has now so much money that he can dedicate to doing good um, that that probably was the best the best opportunity that he could have taken at the time. 
Yeah, to me it is very surprising because indeed um, his company is kind of like a trading company, some business company, right? Uh, FTX, you mean? Yeah, yeah. Oh, I, I don't know. <laughs> something on cryptocurrency? Something yeah. cryptocurrency. Something, something, okay. something, something crypto. <laughs> okay, something with cryptocurrency. Something with money, it seems. But yeah, at least to me, uh, like if I think about, okay, what do I want to do to improve the world? Well, it wouldn't be going into cryptocurrency. I wouldn't, yeah. It wouldn't come to my mind. So um, this is a very... Uh, interesting case or example for me and I actually in fact I do have a friend who is doing the exact same thing like he uh, is also an effective altruist and he went into I think also something crypto <laughs> uh, and he's like earning a lot of money and then saying uh, he spends it on some funds and yeah again uh, this is the thing where I'm like hmm because I'm really not fond of these uh things yet yeah maybe it is indeed more effective yeah no i definitely see your point there like you definitely have to come from a consequentialist mindset to think this is worthwhile because you could also argue which i'm sympathetic to that it exploits a system and causes uh, some harm in doing so but i think it that's offset by how much good he can do with this yeah, in this case. But yeah, if you're a deontologist, you might not like this. <laughs> <laughs> and in this line, I'm wondering, did you, in your in your personal lives, both of you, ever make a choice that, um, yeah, you wouldn't have made uh, if you weren't an effective altruist? So something that was counterintuitive, yet when you thought it through, like, ah, but actually, this is better from an effective altruist perspective. Like for me, many things. Like the, the, the entire idea of donating at all, mm -hmm. you know, that was sort of this whole, this is not going to be effective. It's all corrupt, blah, blah, blah. And then effective altruism says, no, you can just do the, do the research and do the good things. Like, oh, that's already one decision. The giving what we can pledge, mm -hmm. sort of an extension of that. Um, becoming vegan is, I think, one where, I mean, this is not something that is necessarily the most effective thing to do uh, for, for a lot of people because it might take too much effort depending on where you are. For me, it was very easy, and so it seemed like a very obvious thing that didn't cost me anything and that had a good impact on the world. Uh, and I wouldn't have considered that if I hadn't met all these EAs who'd be like, yeah, actually, you know, it's uh, animals really matter, and these are people whose, whose arguments I respected. And I was like, oh, maybe I should actually consider what they're saying then. And like, I started thinking about it, and yes, of course animals matter. Why, why did I think they didn't? That makes no <laughs> sense at all. Uh, of course, I should I should do this thing if it costs me nothing and I'm helping animals with it. Um, so I think a lot of decisions like that, small small or big life changes, were EA inspired for me. Mm -hmm. What about you, Amarens? Um, yeah, hard to say in hindsight mm -hmm. uh, because I've been involved with effective altruism for so long now. I think maybe my current career path, um, I probably would have gone in a, a way different direction if I hadn't found effective altruism because I'm currently not really using any of my studies in the, the work that I do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for you, it's like not only uh, ideology, it's like your work uh, yeah. every day. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and I remember there was something else you wanted to mention about universities. <laughs> oh, right. Yeah, so we have um, currently, so effective altruism uh hasn't grown a lot in uh, the netherlands in the most recent years i think but that is really starting to change and we're really starting to catch up with uh for example the uh, natively english-speaking countries 
And uh, right now there are seven university groups that are starting up uh, around EA. And there's also one uh, in Amsterdam combined for the VU and the UVA. Um, and uh, they recently started up two months ago um, and are creating all kinds of awesome activities. So if you're listening to this and you would like to get involved with them or maybe just have a cup of coffee with them and think about these ideas, then I'd uh, highly recommend you to reach out to Effective Altruism Amsterdam, uh, of Amsterdam University, I should say. Because <laughs> there's also Effective Altruism Amsterdam. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the <that's> group. <laughs> okay. we're, we're, very, we're very cooperative. <laughs> I think that's a really nice message to our listeners to end with. Uh, thank you so much, Tim and Amarins, for joining us today. Thank you, Nicoline, for uh, joining me. Um, we have one last song to play you. Thank you for listening. Yes, and the last song is also an altruism song. And when you arrive at the storm, dansez sous la pluie. Merci pour le thé.